Hey, it's Luke. This week on the pod, Heidi Groover. That's a badass name I hear you muttering. Sounds familiar, maybe? Well, yes, it might. Heidi is a staff writer at the Seattle Times covering real estate from a more of a people than market focused lens, I would say, at least compared to most daily real estate sections. And people meaning tenants and homeowners, but also landlords and sellers. So she spends her days really trying to get a whole picture of the personal impact of what is a global investment market. And because she's doing that for the Times, obviously the main focus is the Seattle and Puget Sound area. But when the state legislature makes a move like it's done, like we're going to talk about, it's obviously going to impact all of us. But if you as an Inland Northwesterner know her, it's probably not from the Times. It is probably from the place I met her many years ago. That beloved and august institution, the Inlander. Heidi grew up in Coeur d'Alene and went to school at Montana, so she has the interior west in her bones. And for maybe close to a decade now, she's been on the front lines of Seattle's overheated housing market, first at The Stranger and now at The Times, both covering it and also, importantly, living it as a renter. She and I chatted about a story she wrote last fall covering a piece of the tenant protection puzzle that hasn't gotten much press. In the last legislative session, lawmakers passed a few new protections, one of which is the right to an attorney for low-income people facing eviction from their homes. This is a first-of-its-kind state law anywhere in America. Programs like this have happened kind of at a municipal level, city, county, in, in just a handful of places. But Washington is the first state to say, if you're being taken to court and you don't have money for your own counsel, the state will provide you with legal counsel. So obviously, that's huge. And really, as a first in the nation sort of thing, you would think there would be more coverage of it. But it's also brand new. So Heidi talked us through how it's supposed to work. One thing to note, we talked about the stuff before the programs had been fully implemented and before we really knew how the rental assistance money and these new renter protections would help keep people in their homes. So you'll hear us talking about stuff that's kind of old news, but you'll hear us talking about it in the present or future tense. It's still newsworthy because in a very real sense, in geological time, it's brand new. This is meant to be a permanent program. It came out of the pandemic, but it's meant to be a permanent protection for renters. And again, it hasn't really been covered in depth anywhere in Eastern Washington. So that's what we did. Get deep into the details of how these processes are supposed to play out. And depth is what you come here for, right? But to catch up before we dive into the nuts and bolts... I did want to call out a nice overview Adam Shanks wrote in The Spokesman in mid-January about the, how the whole mix, both the emergency aid and the permanent tenant protections, have kept people in their homes in Spokane County. It turns out that so far, they seem to have worked pretty well. Evictions are down, and it seems like the right to an attorney is playing a useful role, specifically in Spokane County. Like so many of the things we do even as a state, it's getting implemented at the county by county level. And it does seem like Spokane as a county is making strides. There isn't any real data yet, but Shanks does quote and paraphrase Julie Griffith, the executive director of the Spokane County Bar Association, talking about how her lawyers are showing up to these hearings. Some of these hearings last as long as four hours. So think about in the before time, how intimidating it might be if you're somebody facing eviction, all the stress of that, and you're across a courtroom for a four-hour hearing from a professional lawyer, right? So think about how that would level the playing field and, and reduce stress. And Griffith also said they're finding that a lot of these cases, they aren't even meeting the standards of eviction under the new state law, so it's providing a pretty immediate impact. 
And it's important because often tenants don't even show up in court. And then when they don't show up, there's often a summary judgment against them. So they just get kicked out. So that's a potentially pretty big shift. Shanks quotes Griffith saying, eviction defense really didn't exist like it does now. So hey, what are we, six minutes in-ish? Already some good news. That doesn't happen very often. Let's take a sec to drink that in. But here's the crucial piece, and we'll talk about this in the interview. It's a right now, but you got to know about it. You'll hear Heidi and I talk about the way information can fall through the cracks on its way from the mouths and press releases of state and local authorities to the eyes and ears of the people most acutely in need of these programs. So, you know, there's not going to be a real action item in this episode, except that if you hear of a friend or a loved one or a community member or a stranger or even an enemy who's struggling, let them know that these things are available and maybe help get them in touch with the local tenants union. We'll have a link to the tenants union in the show notes. And you're like, damn, Baumgarten, you're being awful generous to your enemies. Yeah, sure, fine. <laughs> Personal choice. Feel free to not tell your enemies. But I mean, if there was ever a thing that the phrase, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy was created for, was coined for, I think eviction's pretty high up there. No one deserves to be homeless. Everyone deserves shelter. And I sincerely hope this is an example of we Washingtonians permanently bending the moral arc of the universe toward justice on stuff like this. Then Heidi and I also, and you might have seen this coming, I just can't help myself whenever I'm talking to a reporter, we talked about the state of journalism, the barriers to entering the field and the difficulties staying there, especially when rents and housing prices have so drastically outstripped wage growth for working people. I know I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it, so get used to it. Journalism is a working class profession. In terms of the apprenticeship quality of how you get good at the job, it was always a working class profession. And as salaries have failed to keep up, and in some cases just get cut with the decline of the journalism as an industry, what used to be an awesome working class living wage career is increasingly precarious and honestly always but now more than ever it needs to embrace that working classness in my opinion as an industry in a very specific way it's a working class profession that gatekeeps like a white collar industry with things like four-year degree requirements and the reliance on unpaid internships which I, i really don't feel like you can say is anything other than immoral it should be self-evident that if we want a journalism that reflects the totality of our communities, we need to create pathways for storytellers from all walks of life. So there's already a significant barrier to entry. As salaries stagnate and costs like housing costs rise, those gates just keep getting higher and thicker. So what do we do about that? Sound like a good time? It was certainly fun to talk about. And because I was honestly mocked, attacked, by our new audience editor, Val Ogier, for my lengthy, lengthy conversation with Spencer Gardner. We're going to do all of this in a brisk, barely an hour, maybe just a little bit more, a little bit less. Let's say a brisk 55 minutes, but we'll see where it actually ends up. Heidi Groover of the Seattle Times, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is range.
Heidi Groover, friend, former colleague, actually kind of one of my favorite people in the whole world. Thank you for coming on, Range. Yeah, thank you for having me. You grew up in Coeur d'Alene. You worked for a time at the Inletter with me, and now you live in Seattle. So I don't even know. I don't know if you would agree with this, but I think of you as an Inland Northwesterner at heart. Yes, and I have nothing but warm feelings for Spokane. So everyone else can shut the hell up. <laughs> so we wanted to chat with you. You're, you are a real estate reporter for the Seattle Times now, and specifically wanted to chat about this law that just got passed guaranteeing free legal representation for low-income tenants. But just generally, like there's a real estate market in Spokane now and even Coeur d'Alene uh, and, and a lot of places all across the West that is overheated in the way that we used to think only big cities got. And so I'm sure some of that is going to come into play as well. But maybe we could just start with this, this law because it, it seems really, really important. And I want to get your thoughts on how important it actually is, how good it's actually going to be. And then it's it's early days, but whether or not it's actually working. So earlier this year, lawmakers passed a law guaranteeing free legal representation to low-income tenants facing eviction, and those services began October 4th. And it's not surprising that Washington State was the first state to do this, because we tend to do these things early on, but it's kind of surprising that it's only now happening. <laughs> it's like... The softball first is what were legislators concerned about when they passed this legislation? Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty well-documented phenomenon that many landlords arrive in eviction court with attorneys, but whether a tenant has an attorney really depends on where they live and basically how robust the kind of nonprofit legal aid groups in their area are. And there have been studies in, in other cities, primarily on the East Coast, that show that when a tenant has a lawyer in eviction court, they are less likely to actually lose their housing. It's not that surprising. You end up with a better result if you have a legal representative in court rather than trying to handle it on your own, especially while you're dealing with you know, potential housing instability. And so uh, this has been something that people in progressive circles have talked about for a long time. You know, some cities have considered this, but I think that the pandemic kind of hit fast forward on some of these uh, tenant efforts because we realized during the eviction moratorium just how many people were behind and were really already living on the edge before the pandemic. And so lawmakers were kind of talking about this as a part of their efforts to create what they called an off-ramp from the eviction moratorium. So some way to ensure that when the moratorium ended, we didn't have this huge tsunami of evictions. And so on one hand, an emergency measure to respond to the pandemic, and at the same time, it was coming from people who didn't really want to return to the pre-pandemic status quo. Um, and in this case, that was, you know, many tenants going to court without a lawyer. And so that was what was driving lawmakers. That's really fascinating. You guys reported that 141,000 households or about 10% of Washington state renters are currently behind on rent. It seems like a lot. How does that compare to non-pandemic years? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if we have good comparisons because that number comes from this census survey that they've been doing during the pandemic that's been really helpful to keep tabs on how people are dealing with all of this financial uncertainty. Um, so, you know, I think we can reasonably assume that more people were in dire financial straits during the pandemic, but a lot of people were already really living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, falling behind on rent and then catching up and kind of at the mercy of whether their landlord, you know, took them to court right away. And so 
I, I think it's it's likely that it's worse now, but um, it was always you know a, a pretty significant problem. Yeah, you you guys quoted that pre-pandemic there were still seventeen to twenty thousand evictions per year on average. So that's that's still like a significant number of people going through this process every year. Yeah, and a lot of people never show up in those numbers because people get a notice to pay or vacate, which means that if they aren't able to pay, they could face an eviction. And a lot of people just leave. They maybe don't know their legal rights or they don't want something to show up on their record. Um, In some cases, it's informal. It's a text from the landlord saying you have to get out. And a lot of people don't exercise their rights even before this law. And so we actually don't know the full scale of how many people are evicted if you include those more informal ways. But we do know that, uh, unsurprisingly, there's a disproportionate impact. So that's true of both evictions and of the broader issue of being behind on your rent. In Washington state, you know, the The percent of white renters who say that they are behind is about 7%, and the percent of black renters is 23%. And so we know that at whatever point evictions do ramp up, it's not going to hit everyone equally. You mentioned that a lot of people just get evicted without even showing up to court. So does this law do anything to sort of help those people? Do the eviction notifications go to these lawyers or or how do people get notified that they have this ability, one, to even come to court in the first place, and then two, they have this right to legal representation? Yeah, the short answer is that, you know, you find out about the right most directly, I guess, in court. You show up without a lawyer and the judge tells you you have this right if you have a low income and then, you know, you you get a lawyer. But there is this kind of broader, more complicated framework that the state has set up specifically because of the pandemic in which your notice now that you get from your landlord should have information about legal aid services. Um, Your landlord has to offer you a payment plan and some various things like that. So it's supposed to be helping people get help even before they show up in court. But we don't really know how well that's going to work. Right. That wouldn't do anything for somebody that hasn't heard about this program. But if the landlord is following the proper procedures, what I hear you saying is like there should be something at the bottom that's like, hey, if this is going to go to court, you have a right to an attorney, you know, go to this link or something to learn more or call this number to learn more. I don't remember the exact details, but there should be information about how to get legal help. And then once you're in court, you should definitely be told that you have the right to an attorney if you qualify. Gotcha. So the eviction moratorium that we all know about, there was the federal one, there was, and there was also a Washington state one, kept most of the folks that are currently behind this 141,000 people in their homes throughout the pandemic. That moratorium ended at the end of July, but then Inslee immediately instituted a bridge. This is confusing to me, so maybe you could just help me get up to speed on this. It's like it extended some protections or all the protections. Like They didn't want to call it a moratorium extension for some reason. They called it a bridge for a reason, but it wasn't exactly clear to me how it was different than just the moratorium itself. Yeah, it's not just you. It's also not really very clear (laughs) to a lot of landlords and tenant advocates either. Um, It essentially, the big idea is, okay, we have all this money for rent assistance. The federal government has sent out hundreds of millions of dollars to um, help cover the rent that tenants owe. That money goes to the landlord. Okay, we have that money. We have these systems that the legislature passed, the right to an attorney, you know, the payment plans, a few other things like that. 
So before we let landlords start, you know, mass evicting everyone who's behind on rent, let's make sure all these programs are up and up and running and tenants have the chance to get financial assistance. They have the chance to get legal help before they're just evicted. And so in order to evict for non-payment, your county has to have these things in place. That's the basic idea behind the bridge. Okay. But you know, how the counties determine if they're ready, if their program is up and running, all of that is kind of just playing out on a case-by-case basis. So there was all that federal money for rental assistance that was passed in, the, I think, the last bailout. It seems like almost everything we do, rather than that money coming from like directly from the feds to renters or landlords, it got sort of funneled or sieved out to a bunch of random jurisdictions. That was kind of rocky to start, as you might expect. Like, and so all this money is kind of living at like the county by county level. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah, some comes from the states to the counties, some directly from the feds to the counties, but generally it's a local process. You know, and I don't know if this is too much detail, but the agreeing to get the assistance also comes with some restrictions on being able to evict the tenant while you're getting the money, being able to raise the rent, that kind of thing. And so we do have some landlords who are just like, nah, I'd rather just get this person out and get someone new in. And we don't yet really know the scale of that. I would say one thing about Spokane. Um, I just just talking today to the um, person who is the head of the um, state office that's overseeing this right to legal help for tenants. And, you know, he is basically going through this process of having to hire all the lawyers who are going to represent the tenants all across the state. And it's a pretty big undertaking. Obviously, Washington was the first state to approve this statewide. And so, you know, they are standing up the program in counties as they go, as they hire enough attorneys. And and Spokane did get what's called certified. Um, so the program will start. And he said that the primary places where he hasn't been able to stand up the program because he hasn't been able to hire enough attorneys are basically Southeast Washington. So the Eastern Washington counties outside of Spokane. It's hard to hire lawyers who want to move there in some places where you want lawyers who speak Spanish. It's harder to find them. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Is this a permanent program or is it meant to, was it, is it sort of, was it intended by the legislation to, to exist in perpetuity and not just be a uh, pandemic bandaid for, for a, a, an acute problem? And then also like, are we creating like offices of eviction lawyers, the way that we have like public defenders offices? Are these contracted lawyers? Like how does, what's that relationship looking like? It is meant to be a permanent program. Uh, so it was kind of one of these situations of where the pandemic offered a political opening to pass something that might have been more right. difficult before, but it is a permanent program. We don't know yet, you know, if the funding that's been allocated will be enough. You know, perhaps it could be something that is debated in the legislature in the future in terms of how much money to give this program. It's a combination of attorneys who work for the state already doing legal aid and contracted attorneys. And some counties did already have kind of makeshift programs that were similar to this. And so they've been able to just start to pay those attorneys and bring them into this more formal process in which you have the right to an attorney rather than just kind of a volunteer lawyer who's there to help you. So it remains to be seen, I guess, if that will become more institutionalized um, if we'll have to hire more lawyers than they've hired already, if they'll need more money. 
are these like state employed lawyers or are they like contracted out on a case by case basis? It's a combination. It sounds like it's primarily contracted out for this purpose. Um, so you said the legal aid office expects appointed lawyers to be needed for like eight to 10,000 cases a year, which is a lot. But they said they're targeting like 25 active cases a time for full-time attorneys, which seems like a lot. But I, my, I've got a public defender buddy in Spokane that routinely has over 100 cases. So it kind of seems like they're at least trying to sort of think about this in terms of caseload. They are. And, you know, they pointed out to me that eviction, some eviction cases can go really quickly. It's like someone someone shows up in court and it's really dealt with in a matter of a day or two. In some cases, because it's pretty cut and dry, they did violate the lease terms to the point where they can be evicted or the landlord wants to move in or sell um, or something like that. Or hopefully they can get them rent money if that's the problem. Um, so the idea with the caseloads is that some of the cases are going to be intense and take a lot of work and some are going to be quicker. And if they find that the attorneys are overburdened, they will you know, pause the program in that county. And a kind of wrinkle is that theoretically, at least, you can't evict a low-income tenant if they have a right to an attorney and there is no attorney available. So if they got to the point where they needed to pause the program, um, the idea is that would pause evictions of the most vulnerable. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. That is really dependent on the courts like following and everyone agreeing, you know, courts, lawyers, landlords all agreeing on what the law means. But that's sort of how it's outlined by the person who's in charge of this program. And obviously, because of, you know, a Soton County is going to be hard to find lawyers for because only like five people live there and it's in the middle of nowhere. So it makes sense that that one, those Southeast Washington counties would be tough. Um, counties where there's a, a high percentage of Spanish speakers probably also facing those sort of issues. But the intent is that every county is going to have this, a program like this. Yes. Yes, that is the intent. There's a number of reasons. And we've talked to Terry Anderson on range before about there are like just ways you can sort of evict people or, or just get people out or choose not to renew leases when they come to their end. So people are still going to end up in the system or going to end up without housing despite the best efforts of this law. So are there going to be attempts for when, even even when somebody is evicted for cause to then the next step would be connecting them with services like something to help get them rehomed? It's an interesting question. Um, I, I guess the short answer is I don't not that I know of on a, a broad scale. Um, you know, we do, the state did pass a just cause law this year. And so, you know, they have limited the reasons that a landlord can evict or refuse to renew the tenancy. But you're right that, of course, some people still will be, and there are reasons like a landlord wanting to move in um, that are just always going to be allowed. And so I think that Again, unfortunately, it's really going to depend on how robust these types of services are in the place where a person lives. That's sort of already the case. If you're facing housing instability or you can't cover your costs, how much help you can get often depends on, you know, the politics of your county, of your city, um, how robust the safety net is there. A bit of an aside, but, you know, I've been out shadowing these county workers and nonprofit workers who are trying to help tenants get the rent assistance money um, in King County. And they are, you know, just basically helping people fill out paperwork so that they can get the money. Um, you know, maybe people who don't have Internet access or don't 
know how to um, use a computer very well. And they're often offering them, oh, you know, can I help you sign up for um, some type of childcare or food assistance or some other program that you need? And often, like, people do need multiple things, right? And so I guess the more that we design systems where someone has a caseworker for one thing and that can help them get assistance for something else, I think probably the better off we all are. And it's a really good point too, because yeah, these, how do people get behind on their rent, right? Like they lose their job or their childcare gets so expensive that they can't go to their job or if they have to cut hours, transportation is a problem. Like it's not like, oopsie daisy, I forgot to pay my rent. It's not like there aren't systemic causes for the specific, you know, issue of something like rental assistance. These are often like cascading series of failures that lead to people not being able to make rent. Definitely. And and people don't really know when things are going to feel more stable for them. I've I've talked to tenants who are behind and, you know, maybe they have a little bit of money that they could pay toward their rent debt, but they don't know when they might lose their housing. Um, and so they want to save that for first month's last month's deposit, all the costs of moving, even if you try to move into a cheaper place. And so there are just so many people like so close to the edge. And even these programs that might address the immediate aftermath of the eviction moratorium are not necessarily going to address the root causes. Right. Just randomly, I was listening to, there was like a segment on Marketplace, I I think about like rental assistance in like Connecticut or something. And it followed this person and their landlord through these, what would have been eviction proceedings or ended up kind of in eviction proceedings, but because of the, the rental assistance was delayed, they basically sort of like shook hands as the eviction was about to go through to forestall the eviction. But then it was it was weird because it was marketplace, so it's all about more it's about business more than people. Basically, this person had like five or like there were two or three subsequent to the report situations where the person had got behind on rent, and it struck me that it, this isn't necessarily going to be a one time solution into a one time problem for for folks who are that close to the edge. Just because the pandemic, you know, things are returning to normal doesn't mean you don't work an incredibly contingent job, you know, contingent on your boss giving you hours, but then contingent on your ability to like find transit to it. And so I guess it's good that it's a permanent thing. Hopefully it can stay funded because this, this is really something that like affects people's lives for it. it, Again, it's not just a one-time thing that people oopsie daisy find themselves in eviction risk. I mean, and of course, getting evicted makes it harder to find your next place to live. Um, and there's just the much broader problem here of the lack of housing that's actually affordable for people without putting them in, in a real month-to-month situation. And, you know, Seattle has been living that problem for years and Spokane already is or will very soon, you know, deal with all of the same issues. And you know, and so will Coeur d'Alene and every other place that's booming uh, right now. And I, I have heard some academics float the idea of a rent assistance program that is similar to unemployment insurance, where it's a long-term fund that we have available to people when they find themselves in a situation like this. I, I don't know that we'll ever really see the political will for that, so long as housing is essentially viewed as a commodity or is is part of the market, but maybe. That's a really interesting idea. Like, you know, basically 
unemployment, you put, there's like a little surcharge on every paycheck for every employee. You could do a similar thing on every rent check, right? That would be the idea. That would be the idea. I, I don't know of any place that has something like that, but but that's kind of what I've heard some people call for as a way of creating a longer term program for the next time something like the pandemic happens. And I think, you know, it's often we talk about it in terms of tenants and, and how vulnerable they are, um, which is is crucial, but also I mean, landlords want the support too. The the thing with the rent assistance is that, you know, they talk a lot about the landlords with just a few properties and, and how difficult it's been for them to make ends meet during the pandemic if, you know, they weren't running a huge operation to begin with. And, you know, they want the government assistance too in order to be able to pay their own bills. And so there should be some political will here for for support for these kinds of programs, um, not just among you know people who are concerned about tenants. Yeah, the mom and pop landlord is definitely the uh, the charismatic megafauna of the uh, the capital owning you know the real estate industry. <laughs> yeah, no no comment. <laughs> You're such a good reporter, Heidi. Uh, I've been trying to make you laugh all episode. I think I've succeeded a couple times. <laughs> Or tenants' rights advocates, are they happy with this law? They are, yeah. I mean, they they fought hard for this. I think there were people who, you know, had been calling for this for a long time before and, and maybe didn't think it, it would happen. Um, and so they definitely are. Um, I, you know, I talked to the person who heads the Housing Justice Project in King County today, and, you know, his concerns as we go forward are much broader. Um, how do we continue to contend with virtual court, which um, is more accessible for some people and less accessible for other people? How do we address this huge share of people who don't ever come to court when they get the notice um, and never get the chance to access any of these services? Things like that. And so it's definitely, I, I think people are happy about this program, but also, you know, they recognize that there's a lot of other challenges still to address. Are landlords generally okay, and or and is there a difference of opinion between like our the you know the the beloved mom and pop landlords and like you know private equity huge companies that own you know hundreds of buildings? Well, I've definitely heard from um, smaller landlords who wonder you know why they also can't get help with legal representation, who feel like the cost of an attorney is also difficult for them. And, you know, they all have stories of, of tenants that they've wanted to remove that, um, that, you know, they say it's been difficult for them for various reasons. We had a Republican county lawmaker here float the idea of uh, free lawyers for landlords, which was not really given uh, much time by her colleagues, but who I guess felt that the general idea of the state paying for that, you know, was not the same thing as the state paying for a lawyer for uh, a tenant. But, you know, there are people who have legitimate concerns about their own ability to deal with the very complicated eviction process in court in the times when they really do need to remove someone. They often talk about the safety of other tenants. So you have a tenant who is being violent or harassing other tenants. And, um, uh, you know, yeah. that is a that is a grounds for eviction under the state law, but they still talk about how um, difficult 
that was, you know, even before the pandemic. Um, and so they, they have concerns, you know, they, they aren't necessarily against right to counsel for tenants, but some of them felt, some of the people I talked to felt that it wasn't the right thing to prioritize. Lawmakers should spend their time on something else. Perhaps they should be focused more on getting the rent assistance out. That's the kind of stuff that I heard from people. Yeah, and I mean, just to be clear, the the key distinction between a free lawyer for a renter and a free lawyer for a landlord is that if the landlord, either the tenant doesn't pay or they have to take them to court, it's a cost that's, that's that basically gets chalked up as either a business expense or a loss on a profit and loss sheet. And I'm sympathetic to the idea that like mom and pop landlords sometimes need this income to survive or they need it for retirement. That's where a lot of people's parents are going to be at some point, you know, like this is the way people create wealth in our society for better or worse. So I'm sympathetic to that. But the difference there is that it's like, it's an investment risk and a business loss or a business expense versus somebody just not having a home anymore. So those aren't really directly parallel concerns in my mind. And it sounds like the other lawmakers felt the same way. Yeah. And and I think that that's sort of where we get back to the idea that like until the fundamental role of housing in our society as people's primary source of wealth changes, then we're going to keep coming back to these issues. Um, And I think that, you know, I I would also say that the rent assistance has kind of been one of the first times that I've seen a program that is really equally supported and advocated for by tenant advocates and landlord advocates. The money goes in almost all cases directly to the landlord to pay the debt. Um, And so that is a place where there is pretty uniform support for for that program at this time. Well, that's good to hear. So then what what are some potential next, next steps, maybe at the legislative level? What are tenants advocates going to be pushing for? Have you heard anything from lawmakers? What's the next hit they're going to play? Or, or have you heard? I don't really know in the immediate term. I think more broadly, I mean, the thing I hear here all the time is just we need more affordable housing. We need more, you know, we need to replace all of the housing for people with low incomes that has been lost in recent decades so that we don't end up in this problem again. But that's a perennial um, issue at the legislature. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the really important thing to remember here is that like this is like we're putting pressure on a wound at some point, we have to close the wound, and that's that's providing housing for people at, at rates they can afford. And that, like, don't you know? I saw this graph that I'm not going to be able to. It basically it was like starting in the '90s when housing became. It's always been a commodity to some extent, but it became like commoditized on the market. It's like for the longest time, the growth rate of the appreciation of, of real estate kind of tracked with inflation or tracked with the consumer price index. So people were getting raises that were kind of commensurate with the, their rises in housing prices. And then you know, I'm not a legal expert and I'm not a real estate expert, but in the 90s, that got decoupled probably through the financialization of the real estate industry. And now all of a sudden you have wages like this and real estate costs going up, you know, orders of magnitude, multiples higher than people's wages are and certainly higher than like inflation. So like that's that's the chest wound that we're trying, we're currently like putting like pressure on. Does anybody have a solution for that? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I mean, I guess the, the first thing that comes to mind is just that I think even landlords agree that for many people who are unable to afford their rent, the answer is more affordable housing. Um, obviously, we have a lot of debates about how to pay for that, um, and 
Right. I, I guess, you know, and, and how it should happen and what role the government should play. But, you know, I often hear from them that the solution to the problems the advocates are talking about is more affordable housing, you know, not more regulation. And so in theory, that there's a broad understanding that that's a big part of the solution. Um, and I don't know that at a state or city or county level, we're really going to solve that. But that doesn't mean there isn't a solution. I just, um, I, I don't know that that's going to happen in the short term. You worked at the Times for a couple of years. You've, um, you worked at The Stranger before that. I think the last time I saw you in person was when The Stranger did its cover story on Spokane many moons ago, which is, it's a bummer to think that that's the last time I saw you in person. But then even at the Times, you weren't always on the real estate beat. So like, what's that journey been like? I don't know that like, people think of this beat as being exceptionally sexy, but it does strike me that we're in a really, really interesting time to be thinking and writing uh, about uh, real estate. I don't know. I uh, I think I come to it probably from a different approach than other people on the beat elsewhere or, or you know, my predecessors. I had written about landlord-tenant issues at The Stranger um, and, you know, issues like the city's inspection programs for substandard housing and, um, you know, landlords uh, potentially violating city laws about rent increases and things like that. Um, and so I had this sort of housing type of beat at some of the time that I was at The Stranger. And, and so that's kind of more of how I think about my beat here. But it is a lot broader than that in the sense that I had never written about housing prices before or the process of buying a house. Um, I, I rent a studio apartment. I don't think I'll probably ever own a house. Um, and so that was entirely new to me. Commercial real estate, which is a huge economic force in the city, I mean, a huge part of the city's tax revenue was something that I hadn't covered before. And so I think it's really taught me a lot about the wealth and the lack of it and kind of some of the causes of this vast divide that we see. And, you know, we have another team of reporters covering homelessness, so I don't do as much on that, but it's obviously extremely related. It's, I mean, it's two sides of the exact same issue. Right. The, the lack of affordable housing over generations is the reason that we have the crisis that we see on our streets and that Spokane, of course, has as well. For sure. It strikes me also, like there was that story, I, I even think I like DM'd you about this, that like Ketchum, Idaho briefly considered a tent city for its nurses and firefighters. So this is happening everywhere in, in the West and a lot of places around the country. But also, you know, when the moratorium stuff started going up and, and landlords in Spokane started raising people's rents, the first place I saw it was on media Twitter. It was all these young journalists a lot of folks at, at the news stations, but you know, our former colleague Daniel Walter was tweeting about how his rent was going up twenty or thirty percent year over year. Again, when wages definitely do not, especially in journalism, do not go up twenty percent <laughs> year over year. Yeah, uh, oh, I got you to laugh at that one. Um, so, like, th that's like the top to bottom problem of real estate at all levels, creating a you know this unaffordability crisis. This is also feels like going to create crises in professions like journalism, even, you know, places like catch them like nurses, like, holy shit. Like if 
working class people and, and quote unquote professional people. I know I think you would probably agree with me that like, or I at least think of journalism as more, it should be more of an apprenticeship blue collar thing than like a white it's, I don't think of journalism as a white collar profession in that sense, but it's certainly, a, it requires a college education, it, which means it probably requires student debt. And then to hear these people be like, cool, my rent just jumped 25%. What my mind immediately goes to as a guy who left journalism because I couldn't pay my utility bills, this is a problem that's going to, it's going to make our news a lot worse, a lot harder to do, which means it's going to harm transparency in government, transparency in all the things that journalists sort of follow. And... And that's a much bigger problem than like, you know, the <laughs> Donald Trump and Alex Jones getting deplatformed on Twitter. Like we're going to have a serious information problem and that is tied into the housing issue. So this is like a thing that I don't think we can underscore enough. It is a specific problem that is an industry-wide problem that could conceivably and probably already is harming the way our civilization functions. And I'm sure that this is playing out in other industries too, but I mean, it changes who can do the journalism that we read and see. I mean, Seattle is, it's extremely gentrified. There are many, many people who just simply cannot afford to live in the city limits of Seattle. And that boundary of where can, where is affordable is just changing every year. People are getting pushed farther and farther out and that changes who can live here and therefore who's likely to get, you know, who's likely to go to the educational institutions here, who gets internships at media companies here, who can uh, work as a journalist, whether they live in the city that they cover. And, you know, that will happen everywhere or that will happen in every place where the market is is doing what is happening in, in places like Spokane now. And it's, it's already such a, I mean, it's a, it's an extremely, white and kind of middle to upper income profession and that already harms the work and i think that will just continue to get worse in expensive places where people can't afford to live can't afford to come and and um get the wages that a journalist gets um and live in in the housing that's here i mean i had a friend this is like 5 years ago who moved from spokane to seattle and he's work he works in tech he was a tech sales guy so i'm mean, he gets paid well who was like worried about the market and was like hey good news dude i got a really awesome place in west seattle and then he like sent me the address and i looked it up and i was like mf that's not seattle that's white center like mm-hmm. so even like even tech people are living calling it west seattle but they're actually living down around the airport and so I just want to make a joke. Sorry. The the more important point that you're pointing out is like, we're having this reckoning in journalism that's long overdue. And it's really, really good about like, how can we give support to people from non-traditional backgrounds, especially people whose family wealth isn't such that they can afford to do like a free, you know, an unpaid internship, for example. And so like at the, at that level, those, those conversations probably aren't happening enough. And that, that funding probably isn't happening fast enough and we all know what higher education debt's like, but at least the conversation's being had. Now we're seeing this other external force from the other side that's like, okay, even if you do navigate that gauntlet and you're a poor person or you're a, you know, a, a young person of color and you're at your first producing gig at a television station in Spokane, I think it's like you're making 35 grand a year or something, if that, and then all of a sudden you have to live in fear of your rent going up 20% every year over year, that, that's going to wash people out of the profession as well. 
Yeah, and I think it, it also just starts to feel like you are up against this clock. I mean, because owning a home is the basically reliable path to rent control and to equity, then you feel like you need to do that. And the longer you, you know, the older you get without being able to buy a house, um, the more you feel like you're running out of time and you need to, and the more you start to consider leaving journalism um, altogether and, and, you know, going to work for Zillow or whatever. Adding value at Zillow. I'm sure you would add a ton of value at Zillow. <laughs> and I mean, so you're, you know, like I, two, two reporters I respect deeply, you and Daniel have both told me I don't expect to ever buy a house. And so that's, that's really what's left of wealth generation the Times does have a union. So like, what's what does your pension situation look like there? Are you are you feeling like you're going to, if you do manage to stick it out and keep doing this good work, are you going to be able to retire or? Uh, well, the pensions went um, by the wayside long ago, I think during the recession or yeah, um, I, I don't know exactly when. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I should say, you know, we do have a union um, and our wages relative to reporters in other parts of the state are, are much better. And I'm, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Um, you know, thanks to the union, I'm, I'm not at a place where I'm needing to work a second job or, or something like that. Um, but there are many other issues uh, with that. But, you know, the, there are smaller newspapers, there are smaller media outlets, there are the places where you get your start or you do a different kind of journalism or you have the flexibility to learn um, when you're a young person and those are increasingly disappearing. And so, you know, I'm grateful, you know, that I'm getting by, but I worry about the latter essentially being yanked up behind a lot of us um, for the next generation, which, right. you know, we would hope would be be starting to, to work in the industry right now. On the topic of unions, now I'm just freestyling right now, but it does seem like I'm I've, the the labor militancy that's beginning to sort of crop back up is is it gives me a little bit of hope that you know that I'm seeing media um, companies unionize pretty effectively. Teacher strikes that happened a couple of years ago really opened people's eyes. This IATSE stuff that's happening with you know rank and file film industry workers, entertainment workers, seems pretty cool. Like, do you feel like people are rediscovering? the value of like collective action and, and does the stuff that's happening around like tenant advocacy or just like, you know, collective action writ large outside of labor. Do you feel like those things are informing each other? Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't really thought about that. I, I think probably, and I mean, just the last year of activism on racial justice and, you know, lots of different forms of direct action have, I think, you know, kind of woke people up to different types of, of advocacy in their workplace or outside of it. I mean, I think unions and media have a lot to do with what we've seen happen in the industry um, in terms of so many, you know, newspapers being bought by conglomerates, so many being bought by hedge funds, uh, massive layoffs or obsession right. with metrics, all of this kind of stuff that my generation of journalists and the ones before us as well have been dealing with for years. And so it just has made people, it's given people a sense that they have to try to do something. Um, and so for a lot of people that seems to be unionizing, we, you know, the Seattle Times has had a union for a long time and long before I was there. And so, um, you know, I'm grateful for the work that was done a long time ago there. For sure. Speaking of metrics, um, how are your metrics, Heidi? Are you keeping your KPIs up? Or are you? Uh... <laughs> Tell me what KPI is. 
uh, it's a key performance indicator. Oh. So, <laughs> so not very well. Because <laughs> you're writing about tenant landlord stuff. <laughs> this is a, this is something I've been thinking about with range, uh, and now we're just fully into the jazz odyssey portion of the program. But like, I do think about like the people you're writing about, the people that are in danger of getting evicted. Like, I wasn't a news consumer until I was pretty much working at a paper, and I think that's partially because of the generational stuff you were talking about before. Like. My parents didn't pay much attention to the news, and I think it's kind of partially, judging by the way my parents talk about politicians and just the systems that sort of rule our day-to-day lives, like they weren't into the news because they didn't really see how they could, how paying attention would make their lives demonstrably better. Do you feel like the work you're doing from the lens you're doing it, which is, for me, invaluable, do you think that journalism is like trickling down to the people that really need to have this information the most. I mean, one of the questions we asked way back at the beginning was like, are the people that are in danger of getting evicted even going to know about this program? That's like a marketing problem the state has, but that's also a role that journalism would fill. You're writing those stories, but people aren't necessarily reading them. So what role do you think journalism has to play in helping sort of get the information out that's going to allow people to solve these problems? Yeah, I, I don't know um, often if the people affected by what I write about are always reading. I think media um, or, you know, I think newspapers in general um, have a lot of work to do uh, to write for people with less money, less resources, um, less education, right. and and geographically to, um, you know, as people are pushed out, uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do on reaching people. Um, you know, I think my goal, I guess, is, you know, we write regularly about the housing market and what it is like for people who are trying to buy homes in Seattle right now. And I think that that's important. Um, and I think it's equally important to write about what tenants are experiencing, um, you know, in the market with their rents and also with changing legislation. And of course, that also comes with, you know, reflecting the landlord's perspective in those stories as well and and listening to them and their concerns too. The question I always ask, and this is actually, you know, we're talking about new legislation that's hopefully going to make people's lives better. So this is actually an inherently more hopeful episode than a lot of the (laughs) episodes we do on Rage. We should Range of sadness. That would be, that's the real name of this podcast. You know, having covered this for a while now and and back to your time doing housing and homelessness stuff at The Stranger, like where we're at at this exact moment, what what gives you hope and, and what do you think we need to do to like keep that, keep that moving forward, whatever positive momentum there is? Well, I do think the pandemic has brought new attention to I guess, how closely a lot of people were living uh, in terms of their housing. So how closely to the edge a lot of people were living in terms of their housing. Uh, the the difficulty with making rent when your employment suddenly evaporates. And, and also to, to the divide between what's happening in the housing market uh, and then, you know, what's happening with with wages, particularly for people with lower incomes. So I think we have had a new period of eye-opening to the vast wealth inequality, the lack of affordable housing, and there's potential that, you know, that results in big changes or, or structural changes to these systems. But at the same time, I a lo- we talked a lot about what the pandemic could change and, and you know, ways that our society could change. And, and I, I think a lot of what's happening now is just returning to the status quo. So I, I don't actually know um, if that's 
hope worth having, but I guess um, that's, I do feel like more people are aware of housing instability in general because of, because of the pandemic and, and what we've seen with people falling behind on rent. Well, that was, that was almost hope. So we'll give you partial credit. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think that like raising awareness has been really, really helpful in at least diagnosing the problem. People that work on this stuff have a million solutions, whether or not to your point earlier, there's the political will to pull any of them off. That's where the, the work is going to really begin for all of us, I guess, if we want to see this thing get better. It's like, I think what you said was so precisely on point that this program was made possible by the political cover that the pandemic gave legislators to act pretty decisively along a couple really acute needs. And to their tremendous credit, they made them permanent programs to the extent they could. And so that's all good. Absent a centenary pandemic event, it's going to take political will and building that power to get legislators probably to to keep moving. Does that sound like about right? Yeah, I, I hesitate because, you know, I think that landlords feel like that political cover was a problem that, you know, lawmakers right. used the pandemic as, a, as an excuse for, for further regulation. Um, and yeah, it, it just remains to be seen how much energy or focus stays on any of these issues uh, beyond the immediate current uh, crisis. And, you know, we've obviously had a housing and homelessness crisis in the state for a long time. And um, I think we're likely to just see things go back to the way they were. Well, awesome. Last thing I wanted to chat with you about, Heidi, did you realize that you helped me get into podcasts, like as a consumer of podcasts? Oh, no. <laughs> You had like one of my favorite podcasts no. of all time. You weren't listening to podcasts until like I was twenty. I was an extremely late bloomer, Heidi. I started in twenty sixteen, but yeah, I like trust issues was the first. Wow. Like non New York or like not like among like the shit poster broadcast podcasts that got really huge. <laughs> Yeah, trust issues was the podcast that I listened to. That was like, holy crap! Some like a normal person can make an awesome podcast. It was amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm honored. I'll tell I'll tell Sydney. She has she has been trying to get me to do another podcast. So I'll tell her, uh, you know, that I'll tell her this praise. Well, I will smash that subscribe button. So you were you did it with your well once and current colleague, right? So you and Sydney Brownstone worked at the Stranger together, started a podcast called Trust Issues went your separate ways for a while. And now you're both back working at the, at the times together. And you both co-authored this piece we've just been talking about. So credit, there's some credit that goes to Sydney Brownstone as well for this reporting. Yes. Yes, definitely. So how would you have described trust issues? And is it even up anymore? Can I even send people to see it? Cause like it was, it was kind of about like conspiracy theories and stuff. Yeah. I mean, please, please don't. <laughs> um, but uh <laughs> Yeah, it it was about it was about conspiracy theories and, you know, um I think a, a little bit like you know, in in that era when people like Alex Jones right. seemed more like a sort of sideshow than than an actual um threat to to institutions. It's a really good point that it was a much different time in our nation and our world. Um, okay. Well, Heidi Gruber, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thanks for being my friend. Really appreciate your time. The work you're doing is really, really invaluable, especially to the extent that like, you know, the, the times can keep its, keep its eyes on, on statewide stuff like this. It's really, really important because local news in a place like Spokane can't cover everything. And so the fact that 
this came across my transom as a time story in a way that I haven't seen in Spokane. It was really, really helpful. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for us. Thanks again to Heidi Groover for coming on and talking about this incredibly complicated, incredibly important topic. Thanks as always to the team, Kayla Brook, Connor Bacon, Val Ozier. Said 55 minutes. I'm right there. Closing it out. Oop, just hit 56. Damn it. We are working diligently to create a new kind of journalism in Spokane and the Inland Northwest. And if you like what we're up to, go to rangemedia.co, subscribe. And if you want to become a member, 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year, we really, really appreciate that. We want to keep things free forever. We do not believe in paywalls. We do not believe people's access to information should be contingent on their ability to pay for it. But in order to make that happen, we do need support from folks like you if you can afford it. And no matter what, actually, just go, if you haven't been there already, to the new, brand new, rangemedia.co website, where we are, we've taken the first big step in what will be, a, you know, a gradual process of taking what was a Substack style newsletter and turning it into a more full, robust news website. We're still doing the newsletter. We're still doing the podcast. We're trying to reorganize the original reporting analysis additional context that we do in a way that will feel and most importantly function more like a news website. So check it out. Have a good weekend, y'all. Bye.